Hey seekers, what's up? Very often, the journey of seeking is a very solitude and lonely one. Plotinus calls it the flight of the alone to the alone. But in 2020, there's no reason why we need to be doing this all alone. One of the reasons why I started this channel was because I was doing all of this reading and research on my own, and I wanted people to interact with and talk to, and the response and the interaction and the community that's already been built around this in so short of a time has been so fulfilling. So I thought instead of just sharing my own ideas and readings and thoughts with the camera and with you guys, I would invite some of my friends, my colleagues who have been involved in this research and in this study and in the seeking that I've come to know along the time of my search, who have some really great thoughts and great personalities to share with you. Um, and I felt very selfish if I wouldn't be sharing them with you. Many of them have not yet taken the leap to share their thoughts in a public forum yet. So this is my way of cajoling and coercing them to come and share their ideas with the world where they're most needed. And this is my invitation to you as well. If you are here because you're interested in these topics, I'm sure you have some ideas that you would like to share. And uh, if that's the case, please drop me a message. And I would love to interview, I'd love to hear your story, I'd love to hear you present your ideas and your research, because I think this is going to take an army of people. So, um, yeah, thank you for watching, as usual, and I hope you enjoy this conversation, which follows. In this forthcoming conversation, I present to you Gavi Kalterov. Gavi is a young philosopher, a writer, musician, and a poet. He studied psychology and East Asian studies at Brandeis. And in this fantastic conversation, we get to talk about the limits of rationality, mysticism, and the irrational, the experience of self-alienation in the study of mysticism, and Gavi's thesis comparing the thought of Rabbi Nachman and Zhang Zhu, the Taoist thinker, and their ways of dancing around the infinite nothingness. It is a fantastic conversation, and if you come out on the other end the same person, then you were not paying attention. I hope you enjoy. Strap in. Love you. So, Gavi, what, yeah. are, you, what are you interested? What are you, what are you into? Oh, um... <laughs> in general like across the board yeah give us a bit of in general but like more specifically i want to know what you're like intellectual or uh... yeah yeah so so i went to brandeis university just graduated last year um been living in israel since uh except chicago for the past month we'll see what happens after this but in brandeis university i majored in east asian studies and mm -hmm. psychology mm -hmm. um so i studied I've was been always I had like a long a long standing interest in like East Asian like Chinese especially Chinese thought. Mm -hmm. um, it's been, I've been a little bit dormant um, like in the past year um, just because I've been more in like a logistical zone trying to just like get my life together. So I haven't had the chance to get a ton into that kind of stuff again. But um, but it's definitely like a, uh, an interest that's lying dormant, waiting to wake up again. Um, I've been especially Taoism been interested in it for a long time. Um, I wrote my senior thesis comparing um, Ruby Nachman. Of Breslov to um, the Zhuangzi. I mean, you talked about this once at your place. The uh, the old the the um, 
considered like one of the founding fathers of Taoism. The Tao Te Ching, which is like a little more well-known and popular, I think it's one of the most translated books ever, actually. Um, so it's like a little more mainstream in the West. One of the um, most kind of like translated books ever. Oh, translated. Um, the, wow. Tao, the Tao Te Ching, which is sort of like the 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 he's kind of the precursor to he's sort of what people credit as like the first Taoist thinker. So Zhuangzi is kind of kind of his number two, and mm -hmm. he um like a hundred two hundred years later or something. And I compare. Uh, I compared the two of them, and they're both, um, I would say, um, two thinkers I definitely deeply admire, um, even if I'm not actively interested in them um, at a particular moment. I think my uh, general kind of um, bent of my sort of like intellectual beliefs tend to be pretty well, or pretty, pretty well um, demonstrated by my like strong interest in those two, I think, which is that uh, like a few few for a few reasons i think first of all they're both uh, anti-rational and i'm pretty skeptical of rationalism in general um or at least in its um in its uh kind of like in its exclusivist tendency i think that like rationalism tends to convince you that it's the only way of looking at the world and i have no problem with using it sometimes um but i don't really the um I don't really buy it as a as an exclusive outlook on life. Like things don't make sense all the time, and thinking that will get you in sticky situations. Um, and I find that um, usually views that are irrational, whether that's mystical, like um, like Rabbi Nachman, or um, or just kind of philosophical, um, just sort of like absurd, just like a different, funny, more liberated way of living in the world, which is more Zhuangzi, less sort of mystical necessarily, but more kind of about that sort of thing. Um, Either, either one of those things tends to almost be inclusive of the other model. Like they both think that, there's, that there are times to be rational. The rationalism doesn't tend to think that there are times to be otherwise. So I, um, so I, I tend to agree with that a lot. And um, <clears throat> so those, those are kind of, and that's, that's uh, um, one of the reasons I like Chinese thought in general is because I think it's just, it's, it's also, it's very, I think the Western tradition is very, uh, um, tends to be pretty heavily rationalist. And I think that the Chinese, um, definitely have that strain like anywhere else in the world, but they were, um, they're less interested in truth and more interested in, um, in what I, I've heard referred to sometimes as like the art of living, which I think is like a pretty phrase. Um, like they're only really interested in something's true, in something being true insofar as it helps you actually live a better life, whether that means more meaningful or whether that means more efficient or whether that means it gets you what you want or whatever it is. And I'm pretty interested in that. Um, Recently, in particular, I've gotten more into, again, I haven't been reading a ton, been out of that kind of thing, but just in terms of where my thinking's been, I've been, been thinking more, um, more like a Buddhist, probably, I think. Um, thinking a lot about kind of like uh, existentialism and where people are um, and like the nature of, of like suffering as a part of life and how to deal with that as a human being. Um, and I think that's more uh, germane to our current situation, personally and globally, um, instead of kind of the, the, the freer having fun, figuring out like interesting ways to live your life thing. I think that tends to be less, that it's, it's, it's a heavier, more intense time. So I think I've been thinking along those kind of lines. But um, I think in general, that's a pretty good reflection of my interests. Um, I've also been, uh, I like history a lot and been reading a lot of history lately, just either competing around or whatever. I'm reading this fantastic book right now called, um, the Silk, I'm almost done with it, called The Silk Roads by this, some guy who's a professor at Oxford or Cambridge or somewhere in, somewhere in England on uh what's it called um in uh called peter frankapan and he's um it's the, the silk roads the history of something or other and it's like basically a history of central asia um and having like just like all the stands like the least studied place in the world 
um, that no one ever cares about. So I've been having like a super interesting time reading that kind of thing and thinking about different perspectives on um, on on reading history and different ways of. Uh, I'm always thinking about like different models, different like rationalism, mysticism, logic, this, whatever. And, um, and thinking like noticing the way that he tells his story of history and thinking about other ways of telling it and how all that stuff, I don't know. That's kind of a super broad scope of stuff, but that's kind of where my brain tends to be at about these kinds of questions. Does that make, any, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually really epic. And uh, yeah. there's like a lot of, <laughs> there's yeah, a lot there's of, a lot going on there, but it's kind yeah, of, there's a yeah. lot going on. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like jumping points. Um, yeah, will, there's a lot I, of, that's a good survey of where my brains have been at for a while. It's a really great survey. And it's also very like, it's a counter narrative survey. Um, and I want to, I want to, I want to hold like that introduction and then bring it yeah. back uh, at the end. Yeah, let's, but let's what probably. I want to know is, I want to know is how did you get to a place where you were interested in all these things? Like every intellectual, you know, journey yeah. survey has also its, its human and, and biological side. Um, so I'm curious about yeah. your personal story. So, um, so what's your story in like in in your own words? Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. So um, a little bit sick today, but um, so yeah, no, no, no. I, yeah, I mean, I know exactly what you're asking. <laughs> for okay. one, uh, uh, I think I'm a big believer in general that that um, the uh, what's it called? You know, the what I I always kind of put it in my notes once as like the, the, like the, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge is, uh, is, is pretty and tasty <laughs> that like knowledge isn't, doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's like, it's attractive, so to speak, or ugly, whatever it is. Like it's, it's moral and like, it's not, there aren't just facts. They have to do with people right. and feelings yes. and where people come from. And I think that that's a, uh, that's, that's always been like a big thing. It's a thing that I believe in. And I definitely think in my own life, it's for sure, it's for sure the case. So I think for me, um, the the very the technical boring answer I think is I just um, I just have like an obsessive Wikipedia addiction and in <laughs> and in and in high school I um, it was probably like someone was like wearing like a like a t-shirt with a yin yang on it from like the old navy or something and I was like you know I was like everyone like see it all the time don't actually know what it means and I it got me kind of a rabbit hole into Taoism and Chinese philosophy more broadly and. And I was like a pretty meaning seeking bit of a hippie high school kid kind of disillusioned with like, um, like a lot of teenage angst about like America and crap. So I, uh, so I, um, so instead of getting into, I think the more typical route that that kind of kid gets into, which is like sort of Barnes and Noble Buddhism kind of stuff, I ended up getting more into the Taoist thing. Um, and, uh, just totally coincidentally, uh, I don't know, maybe I just wanted to be contrarian um and out of the box so and uh, one thing kind of led to another in college i ended up taking a class in east asian civ my very first semester because i'd always been intrigued by stuff that was different rather than learning more about stuff that i already knew and um and sort of moving like laterally instead of deeper i guess you would say and uh, that kind of got me into uh really into like chinese history and asian history in general and um and uh the two kind of ended up sort of falling in love with the whole culture history. I took a class in Chinese film. I ended up getting just really intrigued with that kind of thing. And as that was going on, I also got sort of more into postmodernism and I found that spoke to me a lot, that kind of stuff. Um, I took a class my first semester on Michel Foucault, who, which was the most pretentious class I've ever taken in college. <laughs> and uh, and um, <clears throat> I ended up later getting into to, to Rav Shigar from the Jewish side of things. So, you know, I read a lot about the intersection of postmodernism and Jewish thought. Mm. And um, uh, 
you know, one thing kind of led to another and I ended up finding a lot of similarity in Phil's modernism and Chinese thought, whatever. So that, that's kind of the more sort of the logistical, like one thing led to another, this is how I got to where I am. Yeah. I think on a personal route, um, there's, there's, um, I think that people, uh, it really bugged me out for a long time that um, people, that I acted differently in different social contexts. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I think, uh, and I think every, like every, everybody does it, like you act very differently around your parents, your, I don't know, say like your, your significant other and like your best friend um, or your teachers. Or, and then within each of those, there's subcategories. Sometimes you act differently around different family members. Sometimes you act differently around different people you date. Sometimes you act differently around, like you have the whole, whole hierarchy of like degrees of how close you are with people. And it really, right. and that, you know, and it really bugged me out that I wasn't the same person all the time. And it, it, I was like, um, as like a sort of, like I said, it's kind of like an angsty overthinking um, introspective teenager. I think that really led me to a lot of um, sort of like existential questions of like, who, just the, kind of the classic stuff, just like who am I really, in, in which of these contexts am I being authentic and in which am I being phony? Um, can I be consistent across these? I think I took it for granted that it was like a thing that I, I wanted to, it was important for me to be the same person across those contexts and figure out which one of me was really, you know, was really me. Um, and <clears throat> I don't think I articulated that so clearly to myself for a long time. Um, I don't think I fully knew that until maybe even like junior year of college where I, uh, so I was going through like a breakup and, and I really, um, it, it, uh, I started feeling that very strongly about like this, this really, like it came back again, kind of that old question for me of like, who am I really? And why do I act this way? Why do I act differently among different contexts? And like, how can I figure out which one is really me? And who do I really want to be in the future? Um, and I think, um, and I ended up coming into, especially with Cigar, um, who I found really answered a lot of, my, or asked a lot of my questions um, before answering them. I think just seeing that was really validating and important and helped me gain a vocabulary to describe it, I think, if that makes sense. And, um, and it got me really into the, the notion of, um, of there being um, different models as like ways of thinking. I became really interested in like cultural relativism, um, like learning about um, how um, every, that, that my issues were kind of on a global scale also, that their like they're, they're truth is like kind of manifests differently in different contexts. Um, and that the, the same thing can appear differently all over the place. And there are different ways of being how, how things change um, in different contexts as that's time goes on. fundamental somehow. Yeah, that, that right, that that was like, that's a, such a fundamental idea in Chinese philosophy and in mm. postmodernism. Um, and in all these things that I was already into, but was like mm. synthesizing in a more meaningful adult way, I think. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and it really, it made, I think it made kind of, I think, you know, philosophy and mysticism and religion is things that get so abstracted and made pretentious so often that it was, uh, um, but for me, they've, they've always been like really, really live personal questions. Like they mm. were ways of answering my own kind of personal crisis of like, well, wow. who, am I, who do I want to be and that kind of thing. And I think, I got really interested in, you know, change and um, presenting things differently in different contexts and storytelling and how the story changes depending on different ways of looking at things and, um, and making sense and meaning out of, out of things that don't seem to be able to be made sense or meaning of and uh, absurdity and nihilism and, you know, all, all of that stuff just kind of, it all sort of came together in those sort of few areas of interest mm -hmm. for me. Um, because it's a very personal question of sort of just, it started something very simple of just noticing I was acting differently among right. different people and it right. became really intense and personal and, and, and ended up becoming very enlightening, I think. And I ended up coming mm. with a lot of questioning, a lot of my first, uh, assumptions and conclusions and, and learning a lot of new things. So, mm. It's really incredible. I mean, cause like usually, I mean, like typically with a lot of like intellectual and philosophical journeys, 
it remains so abstract and it remains so apart from yeah. life. But to hear that it like that these were like questions that were leading you to to sort of solutions and then implementing them and then finding new ways of being with this new like it's it's more than knowledge it's wisdom really it's like yeah exactly uh yeah i really I, i'm a big believer in 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 i don't think you've uh there's a good quote by the the, the famous quote by the cusker Rebbe where he said someone one of his students went over to him and asked him if he and you know told him that he'd like finished um that he had um he'd finished the talmud he'd like finished shots and he went over and the cusker Rebbe replied um the you've i thought you've heard this you know he said it he said you've gone through uh said you've gone through shots but shots gone through you <laughs> just the notion of of yeah of uh i love that quote of um and i'm a big believer in in penetrating into the knowledge of what you're doing and getting to the wisdom and i think if you haven't found yourself in it then you haven't gone far enough wow um yeah so that's that's and i think also like the the what what, what i know you're interested in what um what's we've you know already been talking about here is kind of the relationship between mysticism and rationalism and i think um um or rationalism and a rational whatever you want to call it uh, the right. other thing that's right. the face the st embracing the stuff that doesn't quite make sense right um i think that um i think that um <clears throat> for me i i kind of, in my head like i associate um rationalism with the surface level thing with like the the what you what you would call like the intellectual philosophical journey that's like usually mm -hmm. abstracted that usually kind of happens in that part of the brain or the soul or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of that like the rational realm and the, the other thing the irrational realm I think is usually is is in the place of of wisdom mm -hmm. um, and that's why I've tended to gravitate toward it um, in general because it does it rings it rings more true I think there's both in both right um, you can right. be really like sort of like um, sophist and abstracted and philosophical about uh, about your mysticism and you see that plenty of times um, and you can be and plenty of like rational thought is like profoundly meaningful and I think oftentimes the actual philosophers who, and thinkers who said it were not you know like they weren't saying abstract they were they were talking about how they felt about the world yeah yeah um, but um, but I think to divorce it from human experience is, is often how it's read and interpreted and I think that's always the, part, the thing that bugs me out. Hmm. It's so interesting because like the way that you're describing your study and the way that you're like making use and, and really understanding and implying it is um, it seems like uh, it seems very contrary to the way that a lot of philosophy is being done today um, yeah. academically, uh, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's, I want, I want to get back to that. I mean, I, I think out of like all the people that I've been interviewing so far, besides for uh, Professor Sarasvery, who's a brilliant, uh, she calls us actually a reluctant scholar. She doesn't like the, mm. the academia side of academia. But I think yeah. you're actually like the most um, academically like qualified out of any of us, and yet you're like, you're oh, like, thanks. no, that's that's not that's not <laughs> yeah that's yeah <laughs> the way of thinking. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I imagine it. Yeah. No, sorry. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah. I think uh, one of the funny. It's a funny call. I take the compliment. Um, I um, <clears throat> I definitely think um, being skeptical of your field of interest is only going to make you better at it. Mm, yeah. Um, and I think one of the, the, I've always been interested in like in, in knowledge and learning things, but the things, um, have to mean something to you. And I think that that this skepticism of the kind of superficial, um, level of knowledge, I think hopefully is something that's going to make me able to, uh, be able to teach it better and to connect, um, to connect to the human side of people better, like in terms of, yeah. it's not just information, it means something. And I, th yes. I think it's a very live question. And I think one of my problems I had a, a rabbi when I was in yeshiva when I was 18, who's uh, Ruth Blau, Ruth Blau, who said, I still love rabbi, but we're still close. But he said to me, um, 
he used to he used to make fun of all the time like the the academic world for saying like how could it be that like that like philosophy professors cheat on their wives you know or husbands like how, like i like had the 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 um like how could like the the idea of there being like 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 um like explicit moral transgression and, and like the notion of of, of uh, like it, um, like committed by people who um, are espousing what should be like deeply ethical and moral things or not even ethical moral just just like human thing. you know what i mean right. like it's right. it's not but it's just information and i think like the way academia kind of puts things in a box is uh is uh, i think it's a really again like i think there's a place for rationalism i think it's like a, a really important uh, first gesture like i think you can't like you have to kind of put yourself you have to kind of check yourself at the door a little bit when you were studying something yeah um but i think if you stop there then you're first of all you're 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 lying to yourself that you checked yourself entirely right. at the door and that you're right. studying things like you know what i'm saying like it's not like it's you don't impossible. embrace your bias sure. then yeah like you're a joke of a person <laughs> um like you can't you can't um you can't actually limit your ego um to that extent and yeah. i think that pretending you can only damages your own intellectual enterprise of trying to yeah. tell the truth yeah. um because you claim that you are and you aren't um and i think second of all you're missing something which is why i do it then you know yeah. like why yeah. And like the fact that you're interested in the first place, obviously it must be personal. Like why run away from that? Unless you're just entertaining like a very small part of your brain and that's like getting tickled and some yeah. exercise. And yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I definitely yeah. think there are plenty of people out there yeah, who know sure disrespect to them as people who, who I think like that's enough for them. Like they're, yeah. they're yeah. their whole lives with pure intellectual interest, but I do think it can be a shallow way of living. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious. It's actually, it's so interesting to ask. Um, I'm very new to this whole interviewing thing and it's such a cool experience yeah. to do it and particularly yeah. friends. But um, I, I noticed something interesting in, in asking people to, to like say their story in their own words without giving too much like expectation of how I want to hear the story. Yeah. Uh, the way that people frame their own narratives is really fascinating. Um, yeah. And I'm curious and, and a lot of the other framings, I'm just sort of contrasting with what I've heard and with what you've shared. The other framings were very... Uh, their their religious story played a very very large part in this story, and I mean your your study was contrasting Rabbi Nachman and you're quoting the Kotzker. I'm curious to know what your religious story is and also how that how that narrative plays into your other narratives. Yeah, no, totally. So I think um, um, I have to think about it for a second. I think sure, take your time. I think because the the it's it's not. Mm, I mean. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I, I'm always asking myself and figuring out that question also. So it's like, you know what I mean? Like, why? Like, just why am I doing this? Why am I interested in this? And like, where is that playing to my religious identity? For sure, I think like I can give you a very like superficial answer, um, which is um, like it occurs to me to say things like, well, a lot of this I've also got out of like Kabbalah, for example, or like Hasidut, right? A lot of a lot of this um, being like a lot of these ideas and right. like this, this way of making meaning and stuff like that. Like I've, I've, a lot of it comes from, from Jewish thought, um, especially like the more mystical side of things in your, um, in your own life. Yeah, exactly. Like just learning Jewish mysticism right. has been like a tremendous source of insight for me in making sense out of these things. And that's obviously Jewish. Right. But, but I don't know if that's the real reason, you know, like, I don't know if it's just like another, I, I mean, it could be I, like, I genuinely don't know, but I, I'm not sure if it's like the, the, uh, the, that's like the thing like that is the 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 or like I'm, I'm not sure if it's sorry the opposite i meant i meant um I, i'm like i'm not sure if that's if that if that's just another thing that i study that happens to be religious and that's where my religious identity ties in i suspect uh -huh. there's something more profound uh -huh. i think um so i so to 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 kind of go down that route i think i'm not really sure exactly where this is going to go but I, but i but i can say um 
with certainty that I think one of the things that's always bugged me out about uh, God is um, is God's uh, yeah you know what I think this is a good kind of way to frame it I think is that that um, is that I think um, I've always found God to be very far away mm. um, to to and a very much an intellectual abstraction um that's kind of my like natural inclination but i don't like it i think that that's very comforting for a lot of people like the notion that like they're not being watched all the time that they're not they don't have what they consider to be like a more childish conception or something like that and, and um so because i think that probably that probably would surprise a lot of people who know me well because I'm, I'm very um i'm like talk constantly about ideas of like imminence and intimacy and having a relationship with the divine and like all this stuff and and, uh, and I'm a musician, I'm a bit of a hippie, like all, you know what I mean? Like that kind of, and I think the idea of like this very, and I think I got into all that kind of stuff specifically, uh, it took me a long, a long time to kind of get to this, to re get to this realization. But I think the whole reason I'm into the, those kinds of things is because they um, are ways of overcoming what I kind of feel often is that like essential distance. Mm. Um, and I think that, that all of those things um, brought me to, um, to the more sort of a rational mystical side of things i think like all of the 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 um the the frustration with the distance i found like understanding god as like kind of this intellectual abstraction it made me really realize that like people people aren't machines um and you don't like you can't think things and then feel them you don't you don't arrive at necessarily at, it's one one way to thoughts are one way to feelings like i said it's always a place for rationalism but i think going straight to feelings um is like a, a tremendously important um, thing for people to do and learn about themselves and, and I think that that's been uh, that for me was like a huge religious awakening the notion that like I can kind of just that there were certain problems that I wouldn't be able to think my way out of and that I would feel like I had a, a stronger Jewish identity a stronger connection to God a more meaningful life better relationships like all this like it was all tied together for me if, if I could um, kind of cut to the core um, and like skirt around the brain problem and get straight to the heart and I think that that's more of the that kind of like pre-intellectual language um is is much more the the realm of of mysticism of postmodernism it's a lot of, of of the stuff you know like Taoism is talking at least ancient kind of philosophers were like thinking about a lot um and uh yeah i think that's does that does that make sense this kind of vaguely answer the question yeah it's it's firstly it's really fascinating to see you like formulated like in yeah. in action it's really cool yeah. um and also it's so interesting. I'm just like reflecting on, um, it's so interesting like to ask about religion and to hear back about God. On the one hand, that makes yeah. a lot of sense, right? Because yeah. of course, but then on the other hand, it's like, who talks about God when like, when they pose a question about religion? It's like, it's like religion, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Which is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. It's I like, mean, to me, again, it's, it's the core of the issue, you know, like why pretend? <laughs> it's, it's almost, it's, I mean, it seems like you have this like, um, this like, I don't know, like this drive to like get to like to, to like not be satisfied with the surround and the fluff and the and the. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think I think um uh the I think Jew Jewish identity is is a tremendous part of it. Um, I don't think it's my intuition to answer about identity when you say that. Mm. Um, but uh, for me, like it was enough. I mean, that's that's part of the kind of what I said in the beginning about like I was having kind of this like teenage that I still have, you know, but like this sort of teenage, probably lifelong crisis of like, well, who am I? Differently, different kind. You know what I mean? I think mm -hmm. well, to what extent am I Jewish? and when, where, and with mm. who am I Jewish was also mm. a big part of it. Um, that was, so that, that was, you know what I mean? So it's kind of, it's a more local way of looking at things. It's not like the, it's like one of a few different identities that I have that I was really 
bugging out about. Sure. But um, but that but but that was but that was part of it for me was you know having nothing nothing to do with God just the sense of like um, the 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 fact that I feel Jewish sometimes and not other times mm. um, was or like even you know something as simple as like in college I'd go to the 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 Beit Midrash and study you know like Jewish texts um, in college and then I would leave in like a very religious, um, we might call like more conservative context. And then I would leave to like go out to Boston with friends mm. and it would then like, you know, grab drinks mm. and like, it really freaked me out. Right. I was like, am I doing something wrong? And it wasn't quite guilt as much as like a sense of like internal contradiction. And yeah. like, I liked yeah. both sides of me and I didn't really know how to do that. I didn't, am I, am I not Jewish in the bar? Am I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like, yeah. Yeah. that was, that was, so that, so that, that was a piece of it, I think. Yeah. It's definitely something I can relate to a lot. That sense of, of, of sort of split identity and like, this almost like the schizophrenia it's like which which am i who am i um i'm curious did you grow up in a uh religious community in a religious neighborhood was yeah i grew up in a, i grew up in a pretty uh pretty typical uh what you would call typical modern orthodox kind of um i don't know you know middle american upbringing whatever i like grew up in in skokie illinois mm-hmm. um in a uh, like went to a jewish day school my 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 whole life never really particularly liked it um i wouldn't say i was like proud to be Jewish in terms of the Jewish identity question and I wouldn't say that I had a, such a profound meaningful connection or just understanding of or we're thinking about God that constantly from the sort of from that angle so from both the identity piece and the God piece right. of it, I think I wasn't really so necessarily stimulated but but I um but you know but it was definitely my life how did you how did you encounter Jewish mysticism um growing up in a modern Orthodox community which is yeah, so I, I didn't, <laughs> is, the, okay. is the short answer. Uh, it wasn't something I got into until uh, I didn't even realize um, that it was really an option. Like, I think, um, like, Hasidim were basically just, you know, people who wore suits and hats um, until I um, until I was uh, really in yeshiva, until I, you know, took my gap here after high school, before college in, in Jerusalem. And... Um, was sort of introduced much more specific it was first to like the world of Hasidism and to the world of also of Rav Kook, the, you know, like the Israeli Jewish, um, mystic. And, uh, and before I got into that stuff, I didn't really know, again, like I was kind of saying before, like sort of any other kind of vaguely hippie, angsty, thoughtful teenager, I was like much more drawn to like the Chinese, the Asian thing, which I still am, is a big part of my identity and I'm fascinated right. by, but, um, but, um, but I wasn't even aware that there was a Jewish corollary. It wasn't even a, a thing wow. for me to look into. Wow. Like I wasn't, I wasn't really aware that there were like a, that there was like a Jewish mystical counterpart wow. to that stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, and in, in a right in my gap year program in the yeshiva, I was like more introduced to that kind of stuff. And I was like, and I don't think I connected it for a while that I was like, Oh, this is the Jewish version. I actually, I didn't even articulate until mm. literally, I think it was like this past summer, like dawned on me. It's like blaringly obvious epiphany that like every culture has their mystics and like the Hasidim are the Jewish mystics. Like they are like the, like the Rebbe is the Jewish Dalai Lama. Like mm. they you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. and it was like such an obvious formula, like thing to say and thing yeah. to think, but it just never occurred to me that like wow. we all, every, every culture has theirs. Right. Um, like the, the, you know, like the, the Chinese, the Arabs, the Indians, like the, the, like all of those, the, like all of those people are like, are like very, old groups of people and they all yeah. have like politicians and writers and thinkers and philosophers and mystics and like, right. that's right. that's who ours are and it just like never <laughs> occurred to me to even frame it like that which is so funny like i always thought it was this different thing but it's you know what i mean what was that what was that realization like for you 
it was it was funny uh it was like uh it was definitely a funny thought i think i laughed out loud when i realized it because it was just <laughs> the sense of like it was like the sense of like do you think you're so different than other people um and it's not it's not like a it's not selfish or arrogant but everybody just kind of has this exceptional right. identity that like like i study everyone else but like i but i myself don't really fit into anyone's categories and it was this very kind of like weird almost an alienating a little uncomfortable um it was like funny like it wasn't like a huge identity crisis but it was like right. a little uncomfortable realization that like wait a second like this thing that i thought was like mine is really just like everyone has theirs uh, and it was like the sense of like the way i was putting this recently to uh to so i was you know working actually back at a right to my gap year program this past yeah. year as like a, as a madrid was like a dorm counselor and i was teaching a weekly class and one of the things i was saying to my kids is i was kind of trying to teach them about that idea of like self-alienation kind of and um the um which i think is the thing like most if not all 18 year olds are familiar with if they did not just like don't have the you know vocabulary, vocabulary right yeah exactly um so you know words are everything so i was kind of trying to like frame it and i was like and i said like a, and i'm very big into to making things like every day like this again like to getting to like you really feel this in your life it's not just intellectual abstraction so mm -hmm. the way i was trying to teach it was like you know that feeling you have and like like um like you have a house and when you're a kid there's like your home is only home and everyone else's home is just like a foreign place mm -hmm. you know and then you go to someone else's house and you spend enough time and like when you're a kid you go to someone else it's just like a weird it's just like it's not your home like it's not comfortable you know and it's like that's fine because only your home is real and everyone else's home is just like a movie set you know that like disappears when you leave and then you have this like weird realization when you're i don't know how old but you know maybe like 13 14 even like when you go over to someone's house and it's this like very weird mature thought of like wow like the way i feel about my house is the way this guy feels about his house and like that means that the way I feel about his house is the way he feels about my house. <laughs> no? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like that's scary. Like it's this weird thought where like you kind of look, you go back to your like dining room and you're like looking around at dinner and you're like, like sort of you're like looking around and you're like, well, this feels like so like I'm trying to picture how it would look to an outsider mm. and you feel very like cut out from your, it's a, you know what I mean? It's a very strange sense. Yeah. So yeah. I think so. So the, so the thought I had when I realized that like Jewish, you know what I mean? Like I always thought like the Hasidim and like Kabbalah and all that stuff was like a special Jewish thing that like, even if I didn't like it or had nothing to do with my life, I was like, so it's just, it's there for me if I want to get in touch with my culture mm. and heritage. Mm. It's like a special thing that my tradition offers. Mm. And then I realized like, well, yeah, true. Like it's only existent in, in Torah and I think in, in Jewish culture, but, but like there's a mysticism in every culture. And that was like a very self, because I realized I was like, oh, wait a second. Like when I can, when I like academically study or even forget academic, whatever, when I'm just like embedded and I reading a book about Taoism, and it's just like an interesting thing that I can pick and choose whether I want to make a part of my life or not. Like, that's just what Kabbalah is. And that was like a very weird alienating thought. You know, it was mm. like a funny but unpleasant realization. Wow, that's so fascinating. I, I had the same yeah. childhood experience, not with my yeah. home, but the first time I flew overseas. Like most of my family lives in the yeah. States and I was living in Australia, mm -hmm. so we would go and visit. And when I realized that there were like actually other countries with like yeah, other, right. like there's like a whole China with like Chinese people with their own language and their lives like didn't like, in, like, in, like my life wasn't <laughs> implicit in their lives and like it didn't, my life didn't make a difference then. Right, totally. Yeah, yeah, it's very weird. It's like very like, and you know what I mean? And like it's, and I think like the childish way of putting it, you know, is like, oh, like streets are only pretty in my hometown, but they're not mm. pretty anywhere else. Mm. And it's like, well, the streets are only pretty because you're familiar with them. Yeah. And that's yeah. a very sobering kind of scary realization that they're, yeah. that, that everything you sort of hold dear about reality is very postmodern realization. I think it's like everything you realize about your reality is like arbitrary. It's yeah. yours. It's yeah. not factual. It's just yours. Yes. Which is like some kind of beautiful, but also kind of depressing. Like, um, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was, it was definitely a strange realization. I think also it's funny, like it's I, language, I think is a really good example of this 
because when you when you when you and I know a lot of you know like postmodern philosophers speak about about like language is a huge hot button topic for for both mysticism and philosophy that um, that and I think one of the one of the reasons why is this is like this you have this weird kind of like you never really know what grammar is mm-hmm. when you're growing up when English is your first language and you grow up and you like you don't really have a concept of like nouns verbs and adjectives you just kind of know how to speak and then you probably learned about nouns, verbs, and adjectives in a, in a foreign language you learned in school or growing up, whether it was Hebrew, Spanish, French, Chinese, God knows, whatever. And then um, it, it probably took you like several years to realize that your own language had those yeah. things, yeah. Yeah. which is like funny because you already had the vocabulary to self-analyze, but you just didn't do it. Right. Like it's, right. it's so not a natural human instinct to be, to be an exile from yourself, to be outside of yourself. And, um, and that, and to think that about home, about, your literal language about your right. cultural language right. about your personal emotional language is a very weird thing to think and that's a lot of the kind of thoughts that i was having in in starting in i think in high school it was sense of like well i'm different a different kind and it was like well which one of these is authentic which one is the one that i don't it's almost a weird litmus test of like i don't think it's healthy to necessarily add, be obsessed with this question but like it's it's almost a weird litmus test of like who's the real you is like what's the one that i questioned the least what's the one that i don't analyze the most you know what i mean like what's my first language like it's mm. Which is which is like the default, the the base model. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just just to just to for me to get a clear understanding of the timeline here. So you write your honors paper in Brandeis on Rabbi Nachman and Shang Tzu, um, yeah. which I had a chance of reading a while back, a few months ago when we first met, ah, yeah. which was which is brilliant. brilliant. Um, nice. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and. <sighs> The, a writer came after that with your, or? Well, just, it was b- both. That's the okay. confusing part. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was my gap program when I was 18 before college. Okay. Um, and then I returned when I made Aliyah when I moved to Israel um, last year, like last, in, last August, past, this past August. I moved back and I went back to my gap to a writer to work for the interim, for the previous, well, I was only there for about six, seven months before this whole disaster hit. So I've been in Chicago right. since, but so, uh, so I went back and then I, and I went back in the, as in like, as like a dorm counselor and I was like teaching classes a couple times a week and, and hanging out with the kids all the time doing this kind of thing. Very cool. Um, and, and I, and you were writing on the side as well. I saw some of, I think the first thing I saw from you was, um, something that you had written for, um, uh, Lairhouse? for Lairhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, which I think was also a fantastic article about, um, yeah, thanks. sort of bringing pathos and bringing meaning back to, to otherwise what becomes a very empty Jewish life of, yeah. Of, of like sort of straying away from, endless. or at least using, using intellectual abstractions only as like kind of a, a, uh, a, a waiting room <laughs> yeah. for uh, for for the other thing, for the deeper thing. That like from the second I read that piece, I was like, I need to know this guy. Like, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so you you grow up um, monorthodox. You don't hear much about Jewish mysticism or mysticism in general. You encounter Chinese culture and with that Chinese thought and Chinese mysticism, let's say. Um, yeah. And then you come to Israel and you discover Jewish mysticism, and then you take that back with you to Brandeis and you you get the tools to analyze uh, and compare and contrast those traditions. Um, yeah. Is that, a fair, uh, yeah is that a fair sketch? Yeah. 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 A big part of my, a big f- part of my thesis was figuring out my methodology. I spent about a, a month thinking about it and talking to my thesis advisor and that kind of thing about um, what my methodology was going to be uh, comparing and contrasting. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there's a lot of ways to do it. My, I don't know that much about comparative philosophy or religion, which is kind of a shtick cause it's what I did for nine months my senior year. <laughs> I was like pretty amateurish about it but uh but I, my impression is there's there's a a, a real um like very like 
I think the field is very cognizant of different ways of doing it. Sure. And there's like a few different methods of, um, of comparing right. ways of thinking and um, just different stuff. And, uh, and I think, uh, so I don't know, you know, which, which ism or which branch I fit into, I think, but I, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I uh, for me, it's been very important. I think it's really easy to say how two things are similar and it's really easy to say how two things are alike. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think it's, it's very, um, it's really like anyone can go on, like, I don't know, like point out that, like, um, that, that two, two religions, like both touch on the idea, like they both say things like, I don't know, like, like death is liberating. And like, from there you see, oh, you see they had a common root. Right. And it's like, or like you or, or like you see, like, there's a basic truth that everybody has. And I think those are very easy claims to make because yeah. it's very hard to find me and my friend. Have a uh, have a game we play where we try to come up with two things that have nothing to do with each other at all. <laughs> like we'll just go over, we'll be like dolphins in World War Two, and like, and then someone and has to like, prove how they're actually related. Yeah, exactly. It's like really, it's really hard. It, you know what I mean? It's like really like fight commonalities is so easy. So, um, and I think um, yeah, that game's a good time. But um, <laughs> it's a funny human is like you can only, it's like you're it's you really have to outthink yourself. Like your natural inclination is to find. So anyway, yeah. yeah. And I think it's also very easy to point out because new two things are obviously the same thing. Like you know, very few most things do not equal the, like other things. Right. Um, is that um, so? It's very easy to point out differences. And I think the the tough thing that I had a really fun time with in my in my thesis was um, and that I think about a lot is like is the this bit like the finding finding this the first the space that I think people the two ways of thinking have in common and then kind of delving in a little bit further and being like okay how are in 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 the area that these two have in common where are the differences and that's when you can really isolate what makes each thing special mm. i think it's yeah. like you can really tell um like for me it was like i found that um the that ruby nachman or Chuangzi, this classic you know early 19th century like polish thinker and this um <clears throat> and this like ancient chinese thinker from what like 300 bc were like they were just thinking it was like crazy how much they had in common um in terms of like rejecting rationalism in a lot of ways and and embracing it in really interesting counterintuitive ways and and their ideas of like nothingness and all this stuff but they uh and yet um there were really 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 different things about them um and when you when i when i could pinpoint that it helped me kind of the space between those, the differences and the commonalities was really helping me identify what makes someone Jewish and what makes someone Taoist or Chinese. Mm. Um, that was really like, so you really, I think you can pinpoint something about someone's identity when you see what they have in common and different with someone else and you kind of put it together or look in between, like in between the cracks kind of. So that was a fun, a fun and interesting realization. I think about that a lot. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's really, that is really interesting. I, I've had a similar experience where in the beginning I was very enamored by all the similarities and I was just like, I was just like totally blown away and, and finding new similarities was like just finding like nuggets of gold. Um, yeah. And then it, then it reaches a point where the similarities are so abundant and, and ubiquitous. It's just like, they're, they're no longer really that interesting. It's like, you just, you just expect yeah. to see them. And then it's finding differences inside of those similarities, like you said, exactly. which, which yeah. really sheds so much light and really like, and really point to like such a deep like yeah it's also like it's place. the way the way i think about it sometimes is like when somebody points out it's like like you know like people would freak out sometimes when i was you know it's not you know sometimes i'll be talking about stuff and you'll find two things that two thinkers that have something in common and people will freak out like your friend would be like oh my god it's crazy like they're the same thing and you're like well but they're not like <laughs> like why aren't they you know what i mean like why is this not like every once in a while it really is genuinely crazy like you read a source and like 
and like you don't know where it's from and you think it's from one place and it turns out to be from halfway around the world 2000 years ago mm-hmm. and like that's like that really is like you're like oh i genuinely thought this came from a different culture yeah. but usually it's like you can read you know if you're not looking carefully you read ribbon off or Zhuangzi or you know whoever it is and you you be like well but i can clearly tell which one's jewish and one's chinese like why so just i kind of try to stop and ask myself the question of like well, why that like why is it that in spite of all their commonalities it's still easy for me to tell them apart mm. You know, and like that's the area I think where you where you can where you really like that's that's like the magic, the sweet spot kind of. I wonder. I I wonder. I want to. I want to ask you more about the thesis. I want. I want you to share it with the audience. But I wonder if yeah, you sure. brought that back to your own quandary of of sort of difference and similarity <laughs> between your own identities, where you're starting to appreciate yeah. the, the different views that that emerge in different scenarios. Uh yeah, in um, I think uh. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you kind of hit it on the head. For me, and this is a very Jewish idea um, that this is uh, it's been this is a, a tangent, but I think it's a good one that I think uh, um, that uh, I, I, well, I think all the time that like I bug out all the time if I'm like kind of uh, academifying, like putting in a, putting in a box my Jewish identity, and if that's just one like I ask myself that all the time. I'm not, and it doesn't necessarily bother me. Uh, I just wonder often if like am I like a lot of things one of which is Jewish, or is there something really core Jewish about me that underlines everything else? And I think about that a lot. Um, and, um, and, um, and it's funny cause as much as I'm like afraid sometimes that I'm, that it's like, it's, it's, it's that I'm, there's not that much Jewish about me. It's just one thing I'm into sometimes I seem to not be able to escape it. Um, and one example of that, I think is it's a very, uh, it's a very Jewish idea that like the conception of, of, uh, of God. And this is, this is a good kind of my thought in practice, I think, of how it's not just intellectual, it's very personal for me, but I think like there's this abstract idea that's very intellectual and not really specifically relevant to anybody necessarily is in Kabbalah, this idea that like there's uh, there's kind of this ineffable God, right? And, and he's like a big um, oneness divorced from reality without any features, without a face, without a body. And then, um, and he manifests in a lot of different ways. And each one of those things, it's like a, it's, it's a, it's a singular prism. It's like one color of the rainbow. And you can't see the whole rainbow. That's not like in human capacity. Like it's a thing that's much bigger, but when it comes down to earth, it has to take one form and the form necessarily is partial, right? You're, it's like looking, you're looking at a at light through a painted glass window is one way uh, uh, the my Rosh Hashiva, David Aaron, one of the rabbis that I write that teaches a lot. And you change the, the, the whatever the glass is, is going to affect the light that comes through. Um, and there's no way to see pure light from inside. Um, and I think that that's a very abstract cool but not necessarily personal idea right. um but i think for me i kind of had a send and and by the way that's not necessarily um true in like in in, in Zhuangzi's thought for example and in a lot of postmodernism, um there's not really right postmodernism is all like the death of the narrative there is nothing at the center there is no light there is nothing behind the painting what right. you're seeing is, is 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 the glass itself yes um and i think that's so so that that's one way of conceiving of my identity which is there is no real me yes. there's just a bunch of different me's and that's fine yeah. Uh, that freaks people out a lot, yeah. understandably. Yeah. Um, but but I think what what I think about a lot is that there's like a, there's there's a me that's a conglomerate of all of the individual me's that can't exist in one at one time. It's like up there. It's not. It's like a very abstract kind of meaning, useless, meaningless me that like in theory is there. Like there's a me, right? But it's not. But it has to go somewhere. If you, I have to talk to someone, words have to come out of my mouth, and I have to have a conversation with you. Right. And the way we have that conversation is going to be the product of like our personal histories, how I feel about you, if we're comfortable, what we're comfortable talking about, like how I, um, the, 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 
you know, I don't know, like your, your gender, if we're related, like all, like, I think those are all really big deals. Yeah. Um, and I think, and they change, so to speak, like in Kabbalah, it's like the sphere of, right. Like almost like sure. the body part that, that manifests the, the aspect of the divine. And I think like the aspect of, of me that's showing up um, is different. And yeah. I think so like, that's, that's a very, it's a very Jewish idea that helped me to your original question to kind of circle back, you know, kind mm-hmm. of make sense about like this, this different, like what, what, all of those parts of me had in common is, is uh, a clear um, sort of a deference, I guess you would say to, um, um, to the whole me, the first thing, hmm. right. That they, um, that they all like, well, once one, one way I answered the question once I was like bugging out that like I acted so differently around different people was like, well, all of those people, if they got in a room together without me and they talked about me, they'd all clearly be talking about the same person. You know, like it's pretty rare. I don't think there'd be any more than maybe one or two people in the room, which is like, I don't know, like a car salesman that I talked to one time from five years ago <laughs> who like didn't know me at all, who would right. like genuinely be like, wow, that sounds like a totally different person. Like, right. all, you know right. what I mean? Like it's like, you think you're so different among different people, but they're all, but there's something that, that binds them. That's, that's be, the commonality. Right. There would be a family resemblance and, amongst them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and like, as yeah, among the different yous. Yeah. And I think that, um, and I think that the, but, but so that's, that's the commonality, right? That they all owe their sort of allegiance to this one kind of United capital Y, you right. capital I, me, whatever it is. And, but they, but on the other hand, in terms of the difference thing, they're all, they're all clear people know parts of you and they're, and they're, they're you're manifesting differently in different contexts. Right. So that was one uh, way I kind of made sense out of it. Yeah. That's very interesting. It's, it's so great to, to see someone take um, like a very all traditional language and, and reapply it in a, in a way that that's very meaningful. Um, yeah. and I wonder, I mean, I think that, I think the Kabbalists may have had this identity crisis, uh, in reverse where they were trying to make sense of God and they'd be like, oh, we can't get the whole thing. But if we could sort of grab God a bit as Chachman, a bit as Binan, a bit as Malchus, a bit as this, then maybe we can kind and of, we'll be able to get to the root yeah. to piece together, to piece together, like what, what is the capital I that stands behind them? Yeah, exactly. And I don't, yeah. And I don't, um, I don't know that that's so different also. I've, uh, I've, I think that you have relationships with um, other people and you have a relationship with God and you have a relation, which is so to speak, another person and other, and you have relationships with yourself and, um, and you are another to yourself. Mm-hmm. You're constantly trying to figure out yourself. And I think mm-hmm. relationships for me are really kind of the ultimate metaphor of making sense or, or I don't know, a system for like making sense out of things. And when you're in a relationship, you also, you start with like, I don't know, like let's say a little relationship, like you go on a first date, and you get like a, a whiff of a person you get like one sphere like one way they manifest themselves and um it might be so bad that it's not worth finding out about the other parts but i think it's wrong to think that if you don't like you, you don't really know the person you know like you have to kind of like when like you're fleshing them out you're learning you're seeing how they manifest in different contexts and i think often um <laughs> do you watch malcolm in the middle no you're a kid. This is a great TV show. It's like Frankie Mina is a little kid. There's a great, there's a great, um, his, his, one of the, 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 it's just like a sitcom and this is like a show that I love. And his, uh, his mom is this like insanely, just about like him growing up and his brother's being like a middle child, you know, that's in the middle. But, um, his mom is like this, um, just this whacked out, super controlling, like domineering, screams all the time, like totally obsessive, like caricature of like a overprotective mother. And, um, there's a great episode where, and she just like runs the house and they're all terrified of her. And there's a great episode. It's like a couple seasons in where he, where he, uh, he goes to visit her at work and she's like a cashier, like a supermarket. And she's like so submissive. 
and like totally like and she's like coming in and she's like sure whatever go like you know what i mean like if you want to do it and he's like totally he's like what like he's like totally mm-hmm. freaking out mm-hmm. and i think and it's such a trope that like people know about it but, like you meet your boss outside of work or whatever yes. you know and like i think when you're dating someone also like it's just, when you're in a relationship with somebody you you um you like oftentimes even years down the line, you don't see certain parts of them. Mm. And those parts are also the partial representations of stuff. Like you learn something, not just about, it's not a reason like, oh, I didn't know you act that way. It's like, that doesn't really matter. But when you learn about how someone acts in a way that you didn't know, you learn something that's deeper about who they are inside. Right. You learn that they have, they have submissiveness in them. Yes. You know, or like they, and they, they, they learn something just they, like you, you learn something that's behind that. Yes. And I think that you do that. And I think that that's to your point. I think that's exactly what the Kabbalists were trying to do with God. Um, that I think that they were trying to figure out how to have a relationship with someone who they, they didn't, they, they didn't really know at right. all. And there right. was this sense of like, okay, well, we have to figure out all of the parts right. and then what's behind them will be implied. Right. You know, and I think that you right. also have a relationship with yourself. I think, um, that, that, um, that you have, you figure out like, if well, who am I? Well, you say, okay, well, let me see the different parts of me. Let me kind of, it's, you're doing the same thing. And I think, um, and to really, you know, I don't know, this blows my own mind, was this realization was the thought that, that um, you know, I know you're really into Chabad, Hasidut, and in Chabad, there's a big idea of, uh, that the, in Kabbalah in general, but especially in Chabad, this idea that the, that the, the, the Neshama, the soul is a chelak amimam, is like a, a, a small little piece of God. Mm-hmm. And the, the suggestion that what you're doing with God is, is what you're doing with yourself. Yeah. It's not like a metaphor, it's yeah. an analogy. It's like the same thing. Yes. <laughs> like yes. figuring out who you are and figuring out who God, like, I think that's what the Kabbalists were trying to do. They were, yeah. In, in the language that they knew how of, you know, before 20th century post or post enlightenment self-awareness, they were asking, you know, 800 years ago questions. Of, like they were having my teenage identity crisis, you know, yeah. they were like, yes. who, who, who is God really? Who am I really? Yes. Like, yes. And how can I figure it out? Yeah. You know, the, um, you know, the maxim that was above the, the gateway at Delphi, know thyself. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 Like the, the, in, in Greek, when the, by the, um, the oracles of Delphi. Um, yeah. So know, th- know thyself was, was above the gateway and many later mystics, uh, Neoplatonistic mystics, Gnostics, Islamic mystics um, took this line and they appended like a, another part of the sentence which was know thyself and thou shall know God. Um, That's that, cool. The, the, yeah, that idea of, of self-discovery and, and discovery of God are, are one and the same. Um, yeah, exactly. And the reverse is true also that I think what right. the Catalysts were doing was trying to know God in order to know themselves. They're trying to like, um, like, like uh, reverse engineer the <laughs> the process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I it's it's um, it's funny that the the metaphor of relationship which you bring up is a really interesting one, and mm-hmm. and it could be that we like fundamentally think very differently about this. But I think the, the flip side to the so sort of the idea that there's this transcendent God who uh, can only manifest partially in the spherot um, is definitely one aspect in in Kabbalistic thought. But the Kabbalists, you know. Being monotheist, being monotheist can't say that there's really one God up there and then there's like some other lesser God that's manifesting. Um, so the Kabbalists yeah. will often say, um, like in Aramaic, that God in his garments, God in his life force, the Sphirot essentially are, are one. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and because, because of God's indivis- indivisibility, they'll have to say that in every sort of aspect of manifestation, in that, like, in that point of manifestation, as much as it's removed from the essential sort of Ain Sof God, you'll find the totality of God there as well. Um, yeah. And I was thinking, like, in relationships, like, you go on a first date with someone, um, and in that, in, that, in that split second of a first impression, there's, yeah. you'll know there's nothing, 
but you'll also know everything simultaneously. And 50 years later in marriage, I haven't been in a marriage for 50 years, but I feel like yeah. <laughs> still that first moment will encapsulate the essence of the person. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also, it's also true, right? That, that, that context will, like the, the more you know that person, uh, the more you'll understand how much they were in their first mm. interaction. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah. like, like knowing somebody and even something as simple as like, I think using to use a really cheesy kind of romantic example of like the way someone laughs, mm. right? Like, I think that like the, like if someone laughs at a joke you make on a first date and then, um, and it's like a funny laugh that's like kind of weird and like you notice it, um, it's like a funny quirky thing, but then like 30 years down the line where like, you know, that person, like you understand exactly what they found funny about it the mm. first time yeah <laughs> you know and like i think it is true that the totality is in the is in the the is in the 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 point but i think yes. that until you know the totality it's not necessarily so appreciate that mm. interesting yeah. um yeah and i think this goes to like a very core like dialectic and mysticism in general like the the all and the yeah, nothing yeah. um i want to right. i want to ask you about your thesis um and i was wondering yeah, totally. if you would be generous enough to 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 outline your thesis um, yeah, yeah for, for sure. Yeah, I I haven't talked about it in a bit, but um, but it's always fun to revisit. Um, so I right, so I was so I, you know said a few times I compared this guy Zhuangzi uh, to this ancient Chinese Taoist figure to Rabbi Nachman. Um, I think uh, what I kind of put in the intro um, that I sort of liked was was um, well, the there's like a traditional Chinese saying. I never was able to find it in Chinese or track it down or who said it or where it comes from or anything like that. But it's or there's a lot of different versions of it. I think. But it's basically something like a, the basically Taoism and Confucianism are um, kind of the two sort of representatives of the biggest strains in China, which is like the more mystical thing and the more rational thing. Um, and Buddhism is a huge part of China's identity. Also, it gets lumped in more with Taoism, but it shows up in both, whatever it is. But basically, it kind of stand-ins for like those two, for the brain and the heart, I guess you would say. And um, it's sort of in Western terms. And uh, in uh, there's a, so they're usually conceived of as being opposites and as fighting frequently. Um, and um, but um, but of course, you know, Lama says it happens in action. They frequently are, are complementing each other in, um, in Chinese history, which is a shtick also, because like I was mentioning at the beginning of this conversation, I think rationalism excludes everything else, but mysticism or the other thing includes rationalism. Mm. So I think the whole the idea of yin yang is like, is this, is this idea that things are, um, that, that, um, things are complementary, not opposite. And yeah. that a thing always implies it's complement. Yes. Um, so I think like, you know, Taoism itself could have told you that it would work with Confucianism, whereas hmm. Confucianism would deny that. But anyway, there's an, there's an, I like that um, you said that it, that it, that the thing always implies it's complement as opposed to it's opposite. It's, it's opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It's very nice. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so in that's very Taoist way of putting things, I think. So, so in, so there's been a, so traditionally what actually happened, the saying is, um, is um like something like a man is a is a, a something like it's like a confucian in his place of work and a taoist in his home or a taoist when he retires or i think there's a few different versions something like that um and i always really loved that idea and um was introduced kind of to that idea of complementarity sort of counterintuitively mm-hmm. um the where you where, where you would think that they're kind of they're just you know making fun of each other constantly um, I think that when I, I was introduced to that idea in the Chinese thought before I realized how much of a thing it is in Jewish thought, uh-huh. um, consciously, right? The Jewish thinkers talk all the time about the relationship between Jew- between rationalism and mysticism. And um, so I decided that um, comparing the, one of the reasons I wanted to compare Rabbi Nachman and Zhuangzi was because I thought they were the two maybe best representatives of that line of thought in both traditions. Um, 
and um, that there's been there, uh, there's a bit of research into Confucian the relationship between Confucianism and halacha uh, and Jewish law. One second, um, that, I that, haven't... that line of thought being yeah. the the complementarity of the mystical and the rational. Uh, in theory, yeah. Okay. I was like, not even before I was getting into that, I was just like thinking of just the the what's it called? Um, I just wanted to just compare like the irrational part of like of both traditions. Uh -huh. um, like there's, there's been a bit of, a bit of research in like just scholarship and whatever, whatever that means <laughs> into, uh, into, um, uh, between Jewish law and Confucianism, not so much like okay. rationalist thinkers and Confucian thinkers, but there has been a relationship between kind of the more kind of technical pragmatic side of things and Confucian uh -huh. thought, but there hasn't really been any, any, so as soon as when it comes to comparing Jewish and Chinese thought, people found like the brain and compared the brain in each tradition, but they never really compared uh -huh. like the heart in each tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really find anything on that oddly enough. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I decided that I wanted to, and it was just two thinkers that had made a big difference in my own life. So I decided to compare the two. And that was kind of where it started from was trying to compare, compare like the irrational side of Chinese and Jewish thought and pick a thinker that like best represents it. And I talked specifically about the idea of knowledge and how they both think of knowledge. Can I pause you and ask for some definitions? Yeah, um, totally. Um, define for me uh, in the way that you're using them, rationality and irrationality. Yeah, so I think um, that was, that was um, so I think um, <clears throat> rational thought is kind of what we've been talking about as sort of the, the academic gesture, like the, the, when you take something and you want to put it in a box and check mm -hmm. yourself at the door and study it uh, in a way that, and it's also logical, right? It's re it uses reason, um, it makes sense. Um, it's, it's um, it, I think a big part of maybe the, uh, I never studied, like I was helping my sister with her symbolic logic homework the other day. She was like teaching me what she was learning herself. So, like, I don't really, you know, I never besides that for, you know, two hours, I never like formally studied symbolic logic or haven't read too much Kant or anything like this. But, but I, it seems to me that maybe the underlying principle of logic itself is the notion of consistent, of self-consistency. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, so, so the notion of, of having, having to make things consistent, resolving contradictions, um, figuring out cause, cause and effect and explanations. Um, and I think that whole wave of, of approaching the world and, and bias is usually conceived to be a, uh, uh, um, an obstacle to that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, um, well, that um, uh, that whole way of looking at the world is kind of what I'm calling rationalism. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think not necessarily mysticism is a form of irrationalism, I think, mm -hmm. um, but kind of a rat, which I don't know if that's a, you know, like a real, there's a formal definition for irrationalism or anything, but irrationalism is kind of like, to me, it's kind of like, it's the other way of thinking. It's, it's the way of thinking that kind of embraces biases that, um, that embraces the regular contradictions of life that embraces the, uh, the limitation of human knowledge, um, as, as, a uh, uh, like you can interact with the world and frequently we do interact with the world, despite the fact that we don't know anything about it. So it's trying to like tap into that, that part of the brain, or the heart that's allowing you to do that, right? Because logic dictates you shouldn't be able to do things that you don't understand, and yet all the time we do. So what's going? What? How can that be? And I think that oh, that whole body of tools that allows us to do that is like a rational thought. Mm. Um, and I think that some thinkers are afraid of it and try to conquer chaos of life, and some thinkers try more embrace it and view it as like a mode of living. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a good quote in the in the Juanza, um, at the beginning of one of the earlier chapters that's like, um, "Knowledge is uh, limitless." The human capacity for knowledge is finite. To use what is finite to pursue what is limitless is dangerous, which mm. is a quote I always liked. Mm. That um, that it's dangerous. That the attempt, 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the attempt to use uh, to to use um, the mind, which can understand very realistically very little of what yeah. you interact with every day, yeah. um, to under to use that as as kind of your main point of entry into the world isn't going to get you very far. <laughs> right. Um, right. So I think yeah. So um, is that no? That's that's a really that a good, yeah. that's a really beautiful and succinct definition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, so to bring you back to, to your thesis, so you're looking yeah. at, at, um, knowledge, uh, the, the irrational thinker and how they conceived of knowledge, um, which is something we usually kind of, it sounds kind of crazy also at first, like, it's like something knowledge seems to inherently mean something that's logical. Right. And so, you right. know what I mean? How can you know something without under, like, without logically making sense of it? Yeah. So what I wanted to do was basically answer that question, um, yeah. and figure out. Um, what the what the kind of the heart rather than the brain of, of the Chinese and the Jewish traditions two things that have you know probably the two traditions that have most influenced my own life um, to uh, to to kind of pick stand-ins for those two traditions um, and and see what they have to say and see what makes I ended up I wasn't really going out with this intention but finding out what makes one Chinese what makes one Jewish um, what are the basic human insights that they both have to teach mm-hmm. um, and that was kind of a that was that was sort of what happened so I so I, I basically so the thesis was in it was an intro in three chapters. Um, the intro was basically just, you know, historical context, which is interesting in itself, but for another time, I think. And, um, and, um, uh, the, there basically were kind of three chapters where I fleshed it out. So the first chapter was about other ways of knowing. Um, it was a critique of basically kind of what I, sort of what I just said to you, um, of like how the the problems of logic and the intellect, um, and how they can't necessarily make sense of the world. Um, and how, um, for both thinkers, uh, there's other ways of understanding things um, that um, that uh, I can use sort of a brief, brief examples from both is that um, that Zhuangzi frequently speaks about uh, the term in Chinese is Ming, which means it's like uh, it, it's frequently used uh, in phrases to mean knowledge, um, mm-hmm. but not in an intellectual sense. It actually literally means light. Um, it means um, like uh, insight. You kind of you kind of would say, or like illumination. Got it. Uh, and Zhuangzi uses the phrase Ming all the time to mean some kind of like um, intuition. Is how you see it translated a lot. Mm. Is that he kind of he thinks of life as the the because knowledge interferes with your way of living. You should actually deliberately get rid of it and live what he puts as on like a fish in water. Like you should just essentially just trust your gut. Is kind of a simplistic way of putting it that you can actually cultivate a way of living where you're constantly living on intuition. Hmm. Um, and, and relying on your instincts and you can actually cultivate your instincts and your intuition rather than, so rather than going through every situation and feeling like, how can I make the best decision? Right. Being like, stop thinking about the decision. Right. You already right. know what the best thing to do is. And you're, you're going to make a, a wrong decision. You're more likely to make a wrong decision. The more you analyze it and, and move away from your intuition. Sound advice. Very sound advice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he's kind of, he was really into embracing that way of living. And what's and that term? For, what's that term again? Uh, Ming means Ming, uh, okay. is one is one phrase he used. He doesn't only use that phrase, but it's but it's a good kind of succinct mm-hmm. way. It's like that's his term for mm-hmm. for that kind of way of living, uh, or one term he uses. So, uh, so um, uh, and Zhuangzi is also in that chapter. I talked more about kind of their disparaging remarks about the intellect. How Zhuangzi is very into um, uh, the the famous the, the sort of the famous kind of um, you know among a very niche group but, <laughs> uh, sort of famous phrase that he uses called that uh, which means sitting and forgetting. Uh, he actually asked, he wanted you to 
literally sit and forget things you know and ways mm. of thinking about the world and systems mm. of knowledge so you can as a way of cultivating this intuition okay. as almost like a meditative practice like you should literally sit and forget um and ruby nachman for his piece for his part um um was um you know also um wrote a lot about kind of um more like the, the very first uh piece in his magnum opus in Likutei Maharan he talks about getting to the seichel of things, which means like the intellect of things, mm -hmm. um, which is a really funny word to use because he doesn't really seem to be saying anything intellectual. And I think he's mm -hmm. probably doing it on purpose. He's kind of sort of subverting your traditional notion of what it means to know and mm -hmm. understand something. Mm -hmm. That seichel seems to me, it's sort of, it's similar to kind of um, intuition. It's like getting to the core aspect. Bechina is a word he uses a lot, right? It's like getting to the core nature of something um, past the, uh, the kind of description of it or the report intellectually of what someone tells you it might be. And I think it's the same thing as like when you're acting with, it's kind of like when you're acting with a cashier or a, or a lawyer um, or a, even a peer sometimes, like those are all kind of almost not literally, right? But like capital letter words that like they're, they're they cast someone in a role in your life. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the things, one of the, the, one of the issues I think with like the, the, I think it's human nature also one of the issues, especially like a capitalist society, right? Is it really casts people in roles and you relate to people completely as only as one thing mm -hmm. as how they relate to you. And I think Ruby Nachman was kind of asking you to get past it and get to the mm. point where, okay, but who's the person? Mm. Where's like the humanity, the part that you can't, you know, conquer or stick in a box, the part that, yeah, exactly. And that's also, that's not a logical thing. It's not, it's not, it can't be properly explained that sensation of real intimacy and connection. Right. And I think that's what he was often asking you to have and wow. saw the intellect as an obstacle too. So the first chapter was kind of like an exploration of how, um, of the irrational way of understanding the world and how rationalism gets in the way. Um, the second chapter moving past that was like a way of, um, was kind of the, 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 the other side of the coin, which is okay. If rationalism is wrong and it doesn't really represent the way the world really is, um, then there's a really interesting side effect, which is you can play with, like if all kind of facts are you can are sort of made up, then you can mm -hmm. play with facts to get what you want. Okay. Which is like very interesting. Um, so like, um, <clears throat> so Zhuangzi does this, not as much in the Zhuangzi because he's more skeptical of the intellect, but he does sometimes, he'll argue with people and he'll use their own arguments against it, against mm -hmm. them. And he doesn't even believe in the kind of argument they're making. So um, there's a classic, there's probably one of the more, again, it's super, you know, pretty niche community, but like one of the, uh, one of the more, uh, the, the, one of the more famous, um, sections of the Zhuangzi is in a conversation with his uh uh Huisha, who's kind of sort of sort of like a rambam maimonides sort of overly comically rationalist figure he kind of sort of makes into a bit of a joker mm -hmm. and he's talking to Huisha, and they're standing over a river and Zhuangzi looks over the uh the river and he says and he says um oh look at all the fish um the the fish are so happy to be in the river that's what fish really love is being happy in the river um and Huisha says you're not a fish so how do you know um, what fish really love. And Chuanzi replies, you're not me, so how did you know that I don't know what fish really love? <laughs> <laughs> Which is like deliberately funny. Like it's, it's, uh, it's like the only ancient book that like I laugh reading. But, um, <laughs> but it's like he, um, his, his point, right? He's using, and then there's a great argument where Huisha replies and Chuanzi kind of dismisses him. He says, all right, you, what were you asking the video? Let's go to your first point. You want to know how I really thought about it? And he's, and he answers, you know, different conversation, but, but the point is, it's funny that he uses his opponent's argument against him and then says he didn't even believe in the owner. He has his own, like he knows why fish are happy and he explains right, it, right. but, but he, um, but he's, he's able to, and you don't see Hoysha 
being this kind of smart aleck guy who's able to use Zhuangzi's arguments against him, right? right? Like because Zhuangzi doesn't really think that any one uh, way of representing the world is true, there's change. You have to use different models of, yeah. of representing the world as they see fit um, yeah. is, is rather than um, embracing a single one. Um, you can use them, you can use your opponent's argument against him. You can mm. mess with the facts of mm -hmm. the world frequently, mm -hmm. right? Like you can be an intellectual where it suits you and you can be anti-intellectual in other situations, mm -hmm. right? That you can be different people in different contexts. And there's not, not only is there nothing wrong with that, there's something wrong with being consistent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and Ruben Nachman for his part also would, would frequently um, speak about it. I don't think he necessarily do it himself. Like, I don't, I don't know if we have like stories of him like using different intellectual models, but it's, but all throughout his like mystical thoughts in the Kutimaran especially, he talks about um, these ideas of like you kind of like using different models. Um, one really beautiful way that I put it, right, is you know, like in Hebrew, you have otiot nikudot, you have letters in the vowels. And um, in Hebrew, the vowels aren't letters themselves, they're just symbols. So because of that, you can write the letters with or without the vowels. Mm -hmm. And the way he puts it is you can vowelize words differently. Mm -hmm. Is you can, um, you can, if, if the world, if the, the letter, and he's playing with the previous classical Kabbalistic idea that the world is made of letters. So he's a bit of a joke. He's saying like what he's saying is like, well, if the world is made of letters, and you can mm -hmm. vowelize letters differently in Hebrew, then you which can then changes the meaning of the word. The word, yeah, exactly. You can just literally change the meaning of the thing that you're looking at by looking at it differently. Like the yeah. world itself, you can revowelize. Very cool, right? They can kind of yeah, and you can you can play with things, and mm -hmm. I think that's what makes them both funny, right? Like the idea of like play and messing mm -hmm. around with words mm -hmm. and facts and language, and they both liked puns a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that um, and and um, the so that so this, any, this is the second chapter was kind of embracing that kind of thing and what it means to kind of play with reality and facts and use things to your advantage mm -hmm. and um the third chapter was a bit heavier um was about uh the third chapter was about um the the kind of the um the system behind that mm -hmm. kind of the, the really chinese or the really jewish thing that allowed them to kind of get behind that and it was about the idea of nothingness as an explanation mm -hmm. for the that for Zhuangzi. Um, there's, there's a, there's a capital N nothing. There's a big nothing behind reality. And because there's nothing there, there's no reason, there's no thing you have to be consistent to, Got to defer to or have allegiance to. And that's what allows you to kind of change all the time to assume different models as they make sense, which is a really, uh, you know, as obviously abstract idea, but, sure. um, and it's a good demonstration also of Chinese thought. And I think for both of them also this idea that they don't, the only reason it's interesting that there's a nothing behind reality is because it allows you to live better. Because there's nothing behind reality, it's not nihilistic. It allows you to um, to to embrace the nothing, to um, understand the people around you and the events around you at a more in intuitive, like a Ming kind of a way. Mm. Um, or because it allows you to to use different facts and models and and ways of thinking about the world, different ideologies as you see fit, rather than sticking to one, which is one right. solution will never solve all of your problems. Right. Um, and um, what's that word for him? Uh, the Ming. The, the nothing. oh, nothingness, mm -hmm. uh, the Tao. Oh, okay, sweet. The Tao, hence Taoism. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Tao is kind of a, is the big, is the big, is the big nothing. Uh, yes. the big, uh, he's dealing already with, with what I was talking about in the very beginning of this whole conversation was, uh, the Tao De Jing, the, mm -hmm. um, the, the earlier sort of Taoists call it kind of their first work. Um, 81 poems written by a guy named Lao Tzu, who may or may not have existed. <laughs> uh, Lao Tzu, um, spoke all frequently about the Tao as this seemingly like mystical, it's a big debate about exactly what he's talking about, but, but the Tao is a seemingly mystical kind of thing that's like a, uh, that is and isn't there and can be tapped into to make mm. you a better person. Mm. Um, better not necessarily morally, but to like live more efficiently or accurately, whatever it is, mm. to, get, to get what you want done, mm -hmm. um, to, to get it done. And, uh, and, and one, one kind of 
sort of a classic metaphor that he uses to describe it is um, that the DAO is like a, a, the spoke, uh, the hub in the center of the spokes of a wheel, that the spokes spin around it, but they can spin because of the nothingness in the middle. Mm -hmm. Or like he says also, like a, a vessel is useful because um, of the space inside that you can mm -hmm. fit it in. You don't measure a vessel by the walls or a house by the walls, you measure it by the livable space. Mm -hmm. So it's actually space and nothingness that allows things to be useful. And Zhuangzi really went crazy with that. He like took it to a crazy extreme and you read it as a metaphor for logic and living itself. And it says like, because there's nothing that really justifies logic itself, you can use different logical models, different ideologies, different ways of thinking, different ways of understanding, often that are contradictory, mm -hmm. just as you see fit, or you don't need to use them at all. You could just jump straight to the nothingness and just live purely at intuition. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for Rebbe Nachman also, this idea of um, what, I, what I think it is for him is Keter, right? It's the top sphere, like we're talking about the top body part of God, which is mm -hmm. also one of the other names for it is Ayn, is nothingness. Um, but the closest we can get to God is kind of actually the revelation of nothingness. Mm. Uh, the way the Kabbalists would put this frequently is that the, uh, is that uh, if you look straight into the sun, you see nothing. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that the closest revelation you can get to the infinite is actually a, a big zero. Mm. Um, and that's kind of the closest we can get to God. So Rabbi Nachman, I think, saw Keter also, just like Zhuangzi saw the Tao, is either a thing that you could circle around um, or, and kind of, as life changes, keep changing with it. Mm -hmm. um, around the nothingness in the center, and that there is no need to be consistent because they don't the lines don't touch; they all go to this big zero. Mm -hmm. um, or you can jump straight to the zero and live a, a life based on intuition and instinct and impulse and um, efficiency um, and and comfort and liberty and whatever it is. Um, it's uh, for Rabbi Nachman. You can also you can jump straight to Keter um, and live also in a space of of, of intuition of understanding the bechina of everything around you, and, and you don't need to be held back by the knowledge that actually interferes with your relationship with God. Um, but um, or or you can um, you can kind of as ways of getting to Keter um, and notice already the 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 kind of almost spatial language that I'm describing these things with. And for both of them is different, right? It's more mm -hmm. it's Jewish and Chinese. That I think the the for Ibn Achman, the way of getting almost in a climbing the line or the ladder to Keter is probably the way I put it for him, like a vertical metaphor mm -hmm. is. Um, is you go through the other sphere out you assume different modes of knowledge and again they can contradict at different times and it's not so uh the way i like to kind of explain my whole thesis after with that knowledge now in like a really quick uh analogy mm -hmm. is um and i think it'll make a lot more sense having heard all of it just i'll kind of close with this i guess is um <laughs> i think uh is um when you have um <clears throat> when you have uh i think let's talk about like um econ talk about economics right when you're like eight in the lunchroom the economic model that makes the most sense is bartering is trading mm -hmm. you have graham crackers and like your friend has little bite brownies which are two things that i currently have to my left uh <laughs> are uh are uh what's it called uh and so you want to trade and and you're like if your friend says well how about instead of that i give you this you know sheet of paper and you take that sheet of paper and give it to someone else was he just like what like i want your brownies man like what is that like <laughs> like i don't need your like abstract principle like that's insane like i'm eight <laughs> and i think that that um so when you, that's the economic system makes most sense when you're eight. then you grow up a little bit and you go to high school you learn about i don't know capitalism in like a typical western high school and uh and it's and it makes a lot more sense to you you understand why like money is valuable as like a store of exchange and and this kind of thing and um or stock of value of means of exchange you know whatever the fancy terms are and uh i don't know then you grow up you go to college and uh you i don't know you you get into like leftism and you read uh you have like a really leftist professor or two and you read the communist manifesto like once and you decide that uh that you know communism is like the uh is the way to go 
and um, and then no disrespect to your communist viewers. <laughs> And, uh, and then you, um, and it's really, it makes, it's what makes sense to you. It's like, it's not fair that people are treated the way they are and capitalism exploits those people and allows you to relate to people like cashiers and lawyers and all the stuff we were talking about before. And, um, and then a few years go by, you make a living, you have like, you realize what was wrong about your views in college, your views in high school, your views when you were a kid, like yeah, all, all of it. And you, as you go older and older and older, you learn more and it changes your views. And that's not, you know, that's not so crazy. So I think for being, that's a fact, right? That your views change in life. Um, I met a guy once when I was, it was in the middle of when I was writing my thesis. So I was like really annoying and self-righteous about this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I was like, kind of, I was constantly thinking about it. And I met him and he was like an avowed communist. He was like, he was like 25 or 26. And we were at, um, and we were like at a bar and he's like a friend of a friend. And it came up that he was like really into communism. And he was like saying some stuff that I thought was crazy and disagreed with. And, um, and, and I asked him and I said, and he's, he basically, he said to me, he's like, so you don't think that like, the history of like class struggle is like not like the, the truth about like all of history like that's what all of history you know what I mean and I was like well it's like one way of telling the story like and he's like how do you not whatever and I said well like let me ask you something like, did you think that when you were 12 and he's like no and I was like well do you think now <laughs> and he's like yeah and I'm like well do you think you're gonna think it also when you're 60 and he's like yeah definitely and I'm like so you think like you didn't know the truth and then you found the truth and you're always gonna have it forever <laughs> like that's so arid like to, you know what I mean? Like to think that, that, so I think that that's, um, so I, the truth changes and it should. Um, and I think that, um, and like he, that guy thought that he was wrong and now he's right and he's always going to be right. And that itself, like thinking that you're right now is not inherently damaging, I think, right? I think thinking that, that you found the objective truth forever is an arrogant thing. Um, but I think to assume that what you believe in is worth believing in is obviously like, it'd be crazy to do otherwise. Um, not correct. I don't know. There are ways to do it, but it's hard. Uh, and I think, but anyway, I think that Rabbi Nachman and Rwanda have very different ways of explaining that fact. Uh, I think Rabbi Nachman sees it as um, the changes as vertical. He sees changes. You're always getting more right. Hmm. Right. Kind of like in calculus, you get infinitely close to the axis, but you never reach it necessarily when you have like an asymptote or whatever you, um, you, um, you, um, the, none of those economic models is necessarily a fact. Um, but it is true that capitalism is a superior economic system to bartering. It is true that communism is a superior like economic system to what you believed in high school, right? And you kept dropping earlier truths, shedding earlier truths that you had because you found something better. And those they were, they were better. You're like they're actually more right, right? But you're never at the end. Um, there's degrees of rightness, but you're never finished. Um, so that's kind of Rabbi Nachman's conception of truth. He thinks of truth as like a ladder, like I said before, as sort like of approximations of truth. Exactly. That's, I think that's exactly the phrase I used in my third chapter at one point, um, that you're kind of always, they're always, you're always partially approximating the infinite, which is like mm. the really capital T true, but you're never getting there. Mm. Um, you're, you're always getting there, but you never do. Um, so Zhuangzi thinks of truth in a very Chinese way, mm. uh, in a very Taoist way, not as vertical, because um, he doesn't really, he doesn't, he doesn't believe in a God, not, not the Dafka, not like deliberately, he just, he never really occurred to him. He doesn't live in that society, right. right? He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't think, he doesn't also, and he doesn't know about Aristotle or Plato. He doesn't have these ideas that there's like a, that there's a transcendent truth, which is mm -hmm. such a Western idea that we cannot escape, right? This idea that there's like one me, that there's like a, that I have to be true to, that's a transcendent me, right? That's where that comes from. Mm -hmm. um, it's the, and, and I think, um, Chuangzi doesn't think that. Um, Chuangzi thinks of truth as horizontal. He thinks of, uh, you're always going around the way I kind of like a circle, right? You're not going up or down. You're just moving. 
Mm. You just, you get to pick up this item that you want today and you put it down when it doesn't suit you anymore and you pick up another one. Mm. So I think is, is bartering like worse than socialism? Like it's not necessarily um, inferior, right? I mean, like we said before, like capitalism does not work for the eight-year-old. He doesn't want money. He wants little diaper hats. <laughs> You know, like, like it's not, it's not, it's not really clear to me that like capitalism is a superior system for everybody. It's just why, like the only difference, you happen to be getting older, you're like getting taller and aging. That's like a fat time is moving forward. Like that's a fact, but like what works and what, but, but the other way of thinking about it is like, well, there's 18 year old you and 50 year old you and eight year old you, and they're all three different people and they all exist next to each other. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And they all have different things that work for them. Mm-hmm. Right. And like when one ceases to work, you have to pick up another one. And that's, that's kind of, and it's, and, and, and the way that, and it has both of those models have very different implications. They have very common implications for how they think of truth in general, which is that it's, it's, it's the, and they have very different implications for how they think of um, like what the goal is and, uh, and how to use different ideologies and um, the different situations in which you can use them and, and, and what the, what the point is, right. Is the point to worship God is the point to know yourself is the point to live a good life. And, um, and, uh, but, but at the end of the day, they both really don't like ideology. They don't think that there's one answer to anything. And they think it's arrogant to be able to think that you've found, um, to think that you've found the truth, that you're done, hmm. uh, that you're never done. I think it's kind of an absurd statement for different reasons, but for both of them. So that's, I guess that's kind of, that's kind of the project in a nutshell, I guess. That's so epic. Yeah. That's, that's like, hmm. <laughs> And I hear what you're saying that you get to see uh, in their similarity, their unique differences in, and, yeah, exactly. in that spatial model. I, I was, as you were saying that, I was wondering um, if, if because um, the Kabbalists also have two different models of reality of um, Eagle and Yosha. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I was wondering if that, if that came up at all. Eagle, Eagle being um, sort of a, a circular model and Yosha being the, the linear right. or the, 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 the feminine and the masculine as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, so I think those are still my limited impression of Eagle and Yosha is they're still subsumed under the Kabbalistic model, which is really not the, the vertical model. Mm-hmm. Like I know that in, at least in the Ramchal, um, the Moshe Chaim, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Luzato, that his conception of the, of Eagle and Yosha is, um, uh, the, there's, there's still linearity to them. There's just like one is literally linear, like one, it's like a, it's a ladder, but the other one is concentric circles that get bigger and bigger and bigger. Hmm. So when you go, you're not necessarily going around as right. much. Right. Um, so there, there's still an idea of like, there's a truth, there's just different ways of, I mean, that's a really interesting question. Uh, like it's, just, it's like what, what exactly that might mean. Right. Um, the difference right. between approaching an end, whether through circles or in a ladder, like I don't right. really know, you know, I, you're right. I, it's, I it's, it's, one. it's concentricity. Yeah. So it's, it is, it's still moving away or, or towards. Exactly. Yeah. But, but I do know of at least one idea in, uh, in Rabbi, in uh, Rav, uh, Tzadok of Lublin, he, in, um, he says at one point on Parshat Korach that, um, that, um, that, he he relates the idea of uh, of hierarchy um, to of believing in a hierarchy of people in the world um, to um, to Yosher, which he considers like a this worldly thing. Like you have to believe that there are people who are meant to do who are superior and inferior to other people, mm-hmm. but that in the world of the divine, um, there are that's uh, it's, it's um, that's Yo- that's Yosher. But in the world of the divine, there's equal. There's like circularity, and there mm-hmm. isn't. And everyone's equidistant from the center. Yeah, interesting. Um, there's like truth is much more relative, 
um, which is like not totally all the way there to like the Chinese right. level, but it's right. but it's like a lot of the way there. That is <laughs> it's very like some like he, yeah, he has some idea that like there's the, he has like a postmodern nature of truth kind of that uh -huh. not necessarily put truth, but there's some idea of of um, of uh, like equality uh -huh. of truth to some extent. Uh -huh. Um, of different people, like are all like different people are all equally relevant to the grand scheme of things and what right. they believe and everything. And he equates that with like circles, which is like super interesting. But that's right? reserved for like the messianic or the uh, eschatological. Yeah, exactly. Story. He thinks the problem is the story of Korach, right? Who who rebels against yes. against Moshe is um, the he thinks this whole problem is that he's he's jumping to the next world too yeah. soon. Yeah, that's, that's so fascinating. By trying to by trying to subvert hierarchy by rebelling against the leader, he's trying to immanentize the eschatology. As, yeah, is the, um, yeah is the academic way to put it. That's so it's so wild, and I'm sure Rav Tzadik over there quotes the idea of like that God makes us a circle of yeah, yes. and yep, yep, yep. Um, I saw someone else talking yeah. about this in in regards to Jethro and Moses. But Jethro instructs mm -hmm. Moses that he needs to create a hierarchical, hierarchical system of judiciary uh, infrastructure. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, wow. Um, so I want to I wrap up by asking you um, what your current projects are, um, just to get a sense of, 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 of where you are right now and what's exciting, what's fresh for you, and perhaps what you could clue the listeners into if they could be expecting to see something or to follow something if they've if they've come till this far i'm sure they've been enjoying yeah your, your, you and your thinking um uh so that's one thing and then um and then we'll just conclude with some final thoughts but uh yeah so tr truth is instead of like uh um I've, I've been in a bit of a hiatus just like reading stuff and thinking about a lot of this kind of stuff so it's, i'm mm -hmm. taking taking a bit of time time off quarantine and whatnot i'm just kind of chilling trying to make sense out of stuff but um so nothing in particular i was thinking about writing an article um for the warehouse also we'll see if it if i get around to it and if they like it and whatever but i was thinking about writing up the thing about um about um what was it i haven't thought about this in a bit um i had this project about um the the mysticism and rationalism is and rationalism is being about um body and mind as being whether uh, this this idea of sort of what we've been talking how you act differently in different contexts, kind of thinking of the mind and the body as different contexts. Mm -hmm. And am I like isolated or so like rationalism thinks you're sort of a mind, but mysticism thinks you're all, there's always a context. You're always in a body. You're always like that. And uh, and talking a little bit about a really interesting story from um, uh, actually revolutionary China in like the 40s where mm -hmm. they, um, where they, uh, hopefully you'll see some more details up if, if it gets if I get around to it and if they like it but but um about where they uh they put one of their gods on trial hmm. during the communist revolution in China um and uh it's just a really interesting story about how people in traditional China might might think about body and mind and and um and what that means um and Sounds I was thinking like about a very Jewish about, thing to do yeah it kind of does <laughs> I think Ellie I think the last chapter of Ellie Wiesel's night which I yes. never read um has a does like have that very similar story yeah it's yeah. it's something and i think there's something to that um but uh so yeah i'm thinking about that and um but beyond that i'm not really to be honest working on anything in particular i'm, I'm definitely open to the idea of the future i'm just like i said reading a little bit about history and you know novels hanging out having sweet a good time. And, um this uh, might be 
this might be yeah. a good time to ask you. I remember a while back I had asked you to make a video for the channel. Yeah. Um, and you told me that you're gonna that you were thinking of doing one on the creative process as conceptualized uh, by the Kabbalistic schema. Yeah, um, totally. So I'm just gonna put that back out to you that that offer is still out there, and for all the listeners who are enjoying your content, that we yeah. do hope to see um, to see your thoughts in video form as well. Um, yeah, yeah, that's another thing. Yeah, definitely. How, how Kabbalah has to do with art and music and writing and yeah. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really explore that, but but you're also a creative beyond just the intellectual. You're you're engaged in in music and yeah, definitely. Um, it's definitely a thing I'd like to get. Maybe I'll get around to it this week. We'll see what happens. I would be I would be very excited. What I've what I've been doing with yeah. some of the other guys is I've been I've gotten two like bits of content from them, the interview and their bit of content, and then I'm going to release them one following the other. Um, oh, so, very cool. That's yeah. okay. That's good. So that that offers uh, there, and I'll definitely be excited to see that. Um, any closing words for the uh, the seekers out there? Any yeah, final? in general, I think. Well, this was really cool. Ton of fun. Um, I always love talking about this stuff and have it rolling around my brain. So, um, love talking to you about this thing. Like, awesome. Um, it's exciting. Yeah, I think it's exciting to think that that me and you and a bunch of other people hopefully have uh, like a common language mm-hmm. um, to think about this stuff. And I think in general, I don't know if I can give some unsolicited advice to anybody. It just do it to kind of to kind of get down to. Uh, to, to penetrate through, not just to the knowledge, but to the wisdom, to figure out, ask yourself, there's always a reason why you're, uh, why you're learning what you're learning and don't be so naive as to think it's just because it's cool and you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, what, why something's cool to you is, is, is a super important live question and mm-hmm. always ask it and always figure out um, why you like the things you like. And I think that that'll take you into a really deep place. Awesome, thank you so, so much, Gavi. Yeah. Um, where can people find you online if they're if they want to find more of your material, your content? Do you have a platform, a social media that you want to direct people to? Just frankly, just like my Facebook at this point, nice. <laughs> I'm like putting stuff up. <laughs> uh, like uh, my thesis is uh, is online on like the Brandeis University uh, Sweet. Like online library, whatever it is. Um, so just you know, look up my name at Brandeis, or just uh, you know, just, just literally just Facebook me. Uh, it's where everything's kind of nothing, nothing's centralized right now and it's not like you know i'm in grad school yet or anything got some sort of central location but you know hopefully that stuff will be on the horizon so nice feel free to hit me up nice thank you so so much that was epic that was fantastic yeah this was awesome zed <laughs> i really really enjoyed love. yeah i love that you're doing this uh enjoy the rest of your day it's still it's like midday for you there right yeah you're i mean i was also up to like freaking five in the morning last night but Jeez, but this, uh this, you know just... you gotta go to bed too so wow Dude, thanks for uh, thanks for being interested, man. This is uh, this is really cool. It's such a pleasure, honestly. I'm so excited to see like what's gonna come with everyone sharing and everyone getting to sort of virtually meet each other and, and see each other's ideas. Yeah, totally. Me too. Me too. Let me know. Keep me in the loop about what's going on and everybody else's stuff and everything. Absolutely. Awesome. So that was the conversation with Gavi Kalterov. What a genius. What a good man. What a friend. Oh, it's just sometimes a conversation can throw you into a different state of being and uh, i feel like i'm in a different plane right now so i will catch you back on the other side subscribe like share and let us transcend beyond the being and nothingness words are meaningless at this point so (laughs) peace out